0: Let's take our Bibles this morning and open them to the book of Genesis, chapter 30 and verse 37, seeking to cover verse 37 through the end of the chapter of this week. As was mentioned in the announcements, we have a a baptism, 3 o'clock at the Churras' home, Um, Baptism basically is an outward confession of an inward reality in the presence of witnesses. So guess what we need? We need witnesses. So if at all possible and you can make that baptism celebration, we would invite you to do that. And um, a couple of our church members, um, Wayne and Tina Thompson, are very, very sadly to me, personally, uh, leaving. I think either this Sunday or next Sunday is their last week, and they're headed off to Georgetown. Is that right? Near Austin. So, and we got two witnesses back there that said, Amen. <laughs> Uh, personally i I have benefited greatly from the Thompsons. Um, they have really helped me sort of as a pastor stay on top of local politics and thats a, was a huge is a huge blessing. so I want to commend them for their ministry on that. I believe their son was constable at one time, was he not and so they 're very, very involved with um, Local politics, and now the Lord is sending them to Austin. I don't know what's gonna happen, but we'll, (laughs) we'll have to wait and see. In fact, uh, it's kind of interesting, uh, the Thompsons backed one of our very biblically based candidates that recently ran for the House of Representatives. And, uh, I was kind of pulling in, I think it was primary or election day to, to vote for this candidate. And it was pouring rain, and there was Wayne Thompson standing out in the rain with a sign promoting this candidate. And he must have been out there for hours, I would think. And that's what kind of people uh, the Thompsons are. So I wasn't sure if this was their last Sunday or next week was their last Sunday, but I wanted to acknowledge them. Could you just stand for a moment, the two of you, Uh, Wayne and Tina? You're very welcome, and they may be here next week, maybe not, but make sure, whatever you do, to give them a a wonderful Christian greeting and to wish uh, Godspeed on them. We are in the book of Genesis, chapter 30, and God, in the book of Genesis, is at work through a patriarch. The patriarch's name is Jacob. And God is, through these patriarchs, Jacob being the third in the list, is raising up a nation called the nation of Israel. If you can't understand the nation of Israel, you really can't understand the Bible. And you can't understand human history because God has purpose to bless the world through the nation of Israel. And so that's why we're taking our time working our way through these patriarchal, as they're called, narratives, historical accounts of God's work uh, through these three men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, in chapter 30, as we have studied, has entered into a contract with Laban. He's basically paid the full bridal price for his wives, Leah and Rachel. He has uh, at this point 11 sons and one daughter and he has said to Laban, I've paid the full price. Let me go back from Haran, which is up north there, the circle up north, back to my homeland, the land of Canaan and of course Laban doesn't want Jacob to go because Laban is smart enough to recognize that God is blessing Laban, not because of Laban, but because of the presence of Jacob working for Laban. So what happens is Laban enters into a contract with Jacob, and basically the contract is, I'll continue to take care of your flock, Laban, Jacob says, but all of the offspring that happen to be off-colored are going to be my wages. And Laban, thinking that that deal is going to benefit him, uh, enters into that deal with Jacob, and he actually stacks the deck, as we saw last time, creating every possibility where these off-colored offspring could not be born. And Jacob is really getting the short end of the stick. He's not even getting the short end of the stick. He's not getting a stick at all. And so injustice is being perpetrated against Jacob. He's being taken advantage of. And as we left off the sermon last week, we saw that, you know, if you're in a position where you're being cheated or someone is stealing from you or some kind of injustice is being committed against you, you're actually in a really good place. Because that's the type of situation where the Lord goes to work vindicating His people. And so we entitled uh, last week's message, An Opportunity for God to Work. And so we moved away from the contract, as we looked at it last week, into Jacob's enrichment. In spite of all odds, Jacob comes out of this not just a wealthy man, but a phenomenally wealthy man. A lot of people really, I don't think, do fair justice to Jacob's character. They sort of portray him as a cheater, a deceiver. That's not what's happening here. God is blessing Jacob because God has promised in the Abrahamic covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I will bless you. And so we see this enrichment now taking place in Haran as Jacob now becomes phenomenally wealthy, Genesis 30, verses 37 through 43. So as we look at these verses today, here's kind of a rough outline that we're going to follow. We have Jacob's rods, verses 37 through 39, Jacob's separation, verse 40, Jacob's dealings, Verses 41 and 42, and then finally the chapter concludes with Jacob's wealth. And so we have entitled this message, um, True Riches. So notice, first of all, Jacob's rods, verses 37 through 39. We have their making, their placing. We have the mating of the animals and then the product. And this is a very interesting chapter. I had to consult because I'm a city guy myself. A lot of commentaries that would understand this from an agricultural shepherding vantage point. So notice, if you will, Genesis chapter 30. Take a look, if you could, at verse 37. Genesis chapter 30, verse 37 says, Then Jacob took fresh rods, and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing some of these words right, poplar, almond, and plain trees and peeled white stripes in them, exposing the white which was in the rods. So he created these rods that kind of look like a zebra, uh, kind of like a referee in a, b- a basketball game. Um, kind of the zebra effect, these, these striped rods. And he places them in a particular area. Notice, if you will, verse 38. It says, he set the rods... Which he had peeled in front of the flocks in the gutters, even in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink. So he placed these rods where animals normally mated and conceived. I mean, they normally mated and conceived naturally in this area, and that's where Jacob put these rods that he had created. Notice the words of Henry Morris, who was a wonderful scientist as well as a Bible commentator. I looked at what he had to say on this in his wonderful verse-by-verse commentary of the book of Genesis called The Genesis Record. Morris says, critics raise questions about Jacob's knowledge of science. His actions in peeling the stripes in rods from the trees of poplar, hazel, and chestnut, or perhaps more likely storax, almond, and plane trees, and placing them in the cattle watering troughs, have been attacked as showing his belief in the outmoded ideas of prenatal influence. The idea is that Jacob, supposed by making the animals look at striped rods at the same time of conception he that's Jacob could induce them to bring forth striped offspring the doctrine of prenatal influence of course is believed by modern zoologists to be nothing more than a wife's tale. it should not be overlooked however that Jacob was over 90 years old at this time that he was a very intelligent man and careful observer and that he had spent most of his long life raising and studying cattle and sheep and goats, he would have been most unlikely to have been taken on by a groundless superstition. So a lot of the commentators think, well, he created these rods that were striped. That's why when the animals that mated looked at the striped rod, all of a sudden out of them would come striped animals, which would be part of Jacob's or all of Jacob's wages. And Morris is saying that is probably not what is happening here. What is happening here is described at the end of verse 38 and end of verse 39. Very end of verse 38, it says, they, that's the animals, mated when they came to drink. Verse 39, so the flocks mated by the rods. What is actually happening here? Dr. Morris says, the mere sight of the striped rods may have served simply as an aphrodisiac to the cattle when they came to drink. This, in fact, seems indicated in verse 38, in which the word translated conceived in the King James Version is actually the Hebrew word yakam, meaning to be hot. They were hot. They were in heat. And apparently there was something in these rods that gave them a desire to mate and therefore conceive more than normal. Morris says, in some way not understood, but apparently confirmed by many practical animal raisers since, the sight of white streaked rods seem to stimulate these animals to sexual activity, which is what happens with an aphrodisiac. All things considered, it seems more likely this is what Jacob had in mind. He wanted to speed up the reproduction process and to induce the animals to have as many offspring as possible in the shortest amount of time. This would presumably benefit Laban more than Jacob himself since most of the animals should be the normal type. But statistically, he knew that a certain Portion would be spotted. The more animals born, the sooner there would be some with characteristics he was looking for. So let's, uh, Jacob is like, let's get the show on the road with these animals. Let's get them mating as quickly as possible. We're not completely sure of everything, but there was something in these striped rods that increased their sexual desire, their sexual appetite, and we want as many conceptions and as many births as possible because Jacob has already said, part of my wages is the striped or off-colored ones are mine. And so this was actually something that would benefit Jacob, but it was not designed to hurt Laban at all. Uh, Everyone was going to become more wealthy as a result of this um, arrangement, which In the year 2023, we look back on it and it seems somewhat strange. But the product of this is brought forth at the end of verse 39. It says at the very end of verse 39, And the flocks brought forth, striped, speckled, and spotted. Well, they reproduced all right. But the reproduction had to do with more being born that were off-colored, striped, speckled, spotted, which is to be part of or all of Jacob's wages. I don't think Jacob anticipated that. He anticipated a lot of conceptions. He anticipated a lot of births. But as we're going to see in a moment, the sovereign hand of God was at work here where an abnormal amount of off-colored, spotted, speckled, etc. animals were born. And those, according to the contract, which we saw last week, were those that belonged to Jacob in the agreement. Laban never anticipated the majority of animals born would be off Color. And consequently, as a result of this, Jacob now is involved in a separation. He's got to separate the animals because the ones that are off-colored and striped, etc., are part of his wages or all of his wages. So we see that separation happening in verse 40. Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks face toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban, and he put his own herds apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. The ones that we see born in verse 39 are now separated by Jacob, and these are to be Jacob's wages according to the agreement that both men, Jacob and Laban, entered into through their own free will. Now, I realize that what I'm going to say right here is not directly in the context, but it's something that I couldn't help think about as I heard about Jacob separating the flocks. We know that at the end of the age... Jesus Christ in what is called the sheep and goat judgment is going to separate two groups, the sheep and the goats. In fact, here's a chart, and we're going to be given a quiz on this, so make sure you get this whole thing down. Here's a chart that I routinely refer to demonstrating to people that this life ends in judgment. God does not deal with every people group exactly the same way. There's God's plan for the angels. There's God's plan for the demons. There's God's plan for Satan. There's God's plan for the nations. There's God's plan for the Gentiles. There's God's plan for the nation of Israel. Uh, the Bible has all of these sort of sub-themes that... A talented writer can bring together into one overarching narrative, which is what you have in the Bible. A lot of people, unfortunately, follow what I call the ram-jam-and-cram method of interpretation, where they just argue there's one big judgment at the end. That That is not the case. God is dealing with different groups, different ways. But in every situation, in every scenario... This life ends in judgment. First of all, the sheep and the goat judgment, which is in Matthew 25, 31 through 46. What is that? That is a judgment for survivors of the tribulation period. A group that you will not be mixed up in because we are raptured to heaven before the tribulation even starts. And there are those that make it to the end of the tribulation period And the Lord there is making a determination which of these survivors is a believer and which ones are unbelievers. The believers are called sheep. They enter the millennial kingdom in their mortal bodies. And the goats at this time of separation are cast off the earth into Hades. But you'll notice the end game here. It ends in judgment. Moving sort of inward, there's a parallel judgment of the Jews in Ezekiel 20, verses 33 through 44, and that's for the Jewish survivors of the tribulation. And there the judgment is made. I I think it's going to happen at Mount Sinai, the way it's described. Uh, The judgment is which of these survivors that are Jews of the tribulation period, which are believers and which are unbelievers, Believers will pass under the shepherd's rod and enter the millennial kingdom in their glorified bodies, and unbelievers will be cast off the earth into Hades. It's interesting how detailed God's plan and program is if you let it say what it wants to say. If you go to the far right of the screen, you see a horrific judgment. I, for one, hope that we have no Uh, vision or knowledge of this happening because it's some of the most frightening words in the Bible it's what's called the great white throne judgment and that is for unbelievers of all ages it's described in Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15 where unbelievers are summoned from all ages some are brought out of Hades itself and as their names are not found written in the book of life, in resurrected bodies now. And this is a frightening thing to think about, that everyone gets resurrected. Say people get resurrected. Unsaved people get resurrected. And here is this whole group of unbelievers. There's no real separation happening, as in these other judgments, as their names are not found written in the Lamb's book of life. In other words, as it's determined that they've never trusted in Christ for salvation, they are transferred from Hades into a different venue of punishment called the lake of fire. And if that's true, and if that means what it says, that becomes the motivation for evangelism. I mean, we've got to get the gospel out to people because they have no idea what's coming. You understand what's coming because you read the Bible. The unsaved world has no understanding of it. But as God is dealing with the unsaved, this life once again ends in judgment. Now, none of these judgments that I've described yet have anything to do with you. Because you're a blood-bought saint. You're part of the church of Jesus Christ. Yet, when you look at the middle column there called the Bema Seat Judgment... Just to the left of the great white throne judgment, there is a judgment in your future and my future. It's not like these other judgments which determine heaven or hell. That issue got resolved the moment you placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation. But it is a judgment to determine how we spent our lives in Christ I mean, did I allow the Lord to do what he wanted to do with this life, this side of the cross, this side of salvation? Or was I perpetually going back to my sin nature and grieving the spirit and quenching the spirit in the process? The truth of the matter is there is a reality of a backslidden wayward Christian. And you look at that and you say, well, that's just unfair. Well, this is where it becomes an issue because there's a special judgment for rewards. And at this judgment, our lives, not us, but our works, and you'll see it explained there in 1 Corinthians 3 verses 10 through 15, are put through a fire. And whatever is left after the fire finishes its job of consuming is part of some kind of reward that we receive above and beyond salvation. So all Christians will be in heaven. Some will be more rewarded than others. This is where our motives, um, how we structured our lives, whether we allowed the Lord to work in our lives as Christians or not. This is where all of that comes out. And it's not a judgment to determine heaven or hell, as I've said, but it's a judgment to determine rewards. And that takes place at a specific point in time. It's not an earthly judgment, as is are some of these other judgments, but it takes place in the Father's house subsequent to or after the rapture. So no matter how you look at it and what people group you're talking about, you'll notice this pattern of God that this life ends in judgment. And if we understand, by the way, if you go back to the origins of the United States of America, there was actually an oath office teachers or holders in different states had to abide by This goes back to colonial America, even pre-Constitution times, even uh, pre-Declaration of Independence times. And when you look at the material, and I've looked at a lot of it, you could not hold an office in this new country that was developing called the United States of America unless you believed in the inspiration of the Old and New Testaments. And you could not hold office unless you believe... And it's very interesting looking at the language of these various statutes. You could not hold office unless you believe that God is a God in the next life who will execute judgment. Because only when you understand that God executes judgment does it give you any type of incentive to behave properly in in this life. And so those that founded our country were wise enough to make that a qualification for holding office. I mean, you don't have to always look over somebody's shoulder. Are they cheating and stealing or not? If such a person really believed that this life ends in judgment. The, the understanding that this life ends in judgment changes the whole way you think. It changes the whole way you live. There's... a. Uh, a quote attributed to Daniel Webster, one of the great early American statesmen. The great American Daniel Webster was once asked, what is the most sobering thought that has ever entered your mind? And this guy was brilliant off the charts. Of all the thoughts you think about, what's the one that really causes you the most sobriety? That was the question. The great American... Statesman Daniel Webster was once asked, what's the most sobering thought that has ever entered your mind? He quickly responded. In other words, to this type of question, he didn't even have to think much to answer it. He quickly responded, my personal accountability to God. Well, pastor, once saved, always saved, eternal security, no problem, I can live how I want. Think again. There's coming the Bema seat, judgment seat of Christ, where rewards will be given or not given. And by the way, if I'm understanding my Bible correctly, what do we do with our rewards? We cast them where? At his feet. And we cast him at his feet, not in a one-time event, but every time he's worshipped in heaven. And as best I can tell, he's worshipped in heaven all the time. And so you have this ability to take a reward and cast it at his feet, not to pay him back, not to buy something from him, but as an act of adoration and worship. And it's somewhat embarrassing, would it not be, for your time to come to cast your reward at his feet and you don't have anything in your your hands. And I have nothing in my hands. I don't want to end up like that. That's why we need to think frequently about this future time of judgment, this this time of separation, which, of course, has absolutely nothing to do with the passage that we're dealing with. But I think it's worth reminding people of. And that's what I thought of when I saw Jacob here doing this separation. The Lord is going to do something identical or very near identical at the great white throne judgment. And that concept of judgment affects all people groups that God is dealing with so you have here Jacob's uh, separation and then you drop down to verses 41 and 42 and you see Jacob's dealings he deals with the strong in the flock and then he deals with the weaker in the flock notice what he does there with the strong verse 41 Moreover, whenever or whenever the stronger of the flock were mating, Jacob would place the rods in the side of the flock and in the gutters so that they might mate by the rods. Jacob only used the rods when the stronger sheep mated, meaning that the stronger spotted sheep were part of Jacob's wages. And then you go down to verse 42, and he does the opposite with the weak in the flock. It says, verse 42, but when the flock was feeble, he did not put them in, so that the feebler were Labans and the stronger's were Jacob's. Jacob did not use the rods. When the sh- the weaker sheep mated, the weaker solid sheep belonged to Laban. This is a man that's capitalizing on his 90 years of history at this point in time and his profession being a shepherd, a sheep herder. He understood how the process worked. Dr. Henry Morris again says this, "...a further measure was taken by Jacob to ensure that the flocks so produced would be composed of strong animals." He divided the flocks into two shifts composed of stronger and weaker animals respectively. He used the rods in the troughs when the stronger animals drank but not when the weaker ones came there. Thus the stronger animals were stimulated to mate and the others were not. It would ensure, statistically at least, that most of the newborn lambs and kids, whether solid color or spotted, would be sturdy and healthy. However, there continued to be produced an abnormally large amounts of spotted and speckled young. A brief uh, insertion, you can thank God for that, as we're going to see in a moment. Continuing on, he says this meant that a greater and greater percentage of animals in Jacob's flock were strong animals and an increasing percentage in Laban's flock were weaker animals. And this becomes the basis as to how Jacob came into Haran with virtually nothing, uh, fleeing from Esau, as you'll recall. And here we are years later, he has two wives, he's got uh, three, uh, excuse me, 11 sons, he's got one daughter, and he's become very, very prosperous, and very, very wealthy, Jacob's wealth. You look there at verse 43, and you see a description of his wealth. This is how the chapter ends. With a description of how Jacob became so wealthy, verse 43, so the man, that's Jacob, notice it doesn't say he just became prosperous. He became exceedingly prosperous and a, and had a large, had large flocks, female and male servants and camels and donkeys. Now in Hebrew, which was the original language that this was written in, it's very interesting as it describes Jacob's wealth. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says of Genesis 30 verse 43, this verse summarizes Jacob's wealth. The man increased exceedingly. Again, the word used is an explosion of increase. In other words, he is not just becoming wealthy, it's coming suddenly. Explosive wealth. He goes on and he says what was true of Laban's flock. Laban, of course, already being wealthy, was now true of Jacob's flock. The word exceedingly, which you see there in verse 43, is actually two Hebrew words that are the same word. Um, You take those two words in Hebrew and you put them together and you get this meaning Very, very. So you're reading this in English. It says exceedingly wealthy. What the Hebrew actually says by repeating a Hebrew word, first using it and then repeating it a second time, is Jacob wasn't just wealthy. He was very, very wealthy. And that's translated as exceedingly. I mean, sudden wealth on the same level or almost on the same level as Laban. Now, keep in mind that when Jacob entered into this agreement, he was in the place of injustice being committed against him. But look how the Lord has worked. And that's why I tell you in whatever injustice you're in right now, take heart in it. Because God is very capable of reversing your circumstances in and when he deems it's appropriate to do so. The quote goes on of this expression very, very, it specifies a massive amount of wealth, namely consisting of large flocks and maid servants and men servants and camels and donkeys. All this in six years time. So indeed he became very wealthy. In fact, it doesn't even say very wealthy. It says very, very wealthy. And he became financially stable. I want you to see how the Bible defines wealth. The way Americans define wealth is very different than how the Bible defines it. We think that we're wealthy because we have a certain fiat currency dollars in our bank account. And as I'm sure you know, with inflation, the value of the dollar is constantly being... Minimized. It's constantly being decreased. The Bible really never defines wealth in terms of fiat currencies. It defines wealth in terms of what you own, you know, real estate, uh, cattle, and the like. And I'm not here to give um, financial advice. I do give financial opinion of my own for what it's worth. I'm not in the business of giving financial advice, but I will say this. The Bible teaches in the book of Ecclesiastes to cast your bread on many waters. There should be in your portfolio some sort of diversification where you're actually invested in actual tangible things which can appreciate in value real estate, commodities, whatever the case is. That's how the Bible itself defines wealth, not how much money dollar-wise I have stored up in a bank account somewhere. But here's the truth of the matter. People read this and they say, wow, Jacob really was a sinister guy and he got ahead, but it was God that made him this way. God made him wealthy. Notice uh, this quote here from Henry Morris. Morris says in his Genesis record, It was not until later that Jacob came to understand the providential intervention that caused the unusual percentage of streaked and spotted animals to be born. In the meantime, within the space of just a few years, perhaps four or five, Jacob's flock had grown so large and he had prospered from it so greatly that he had to employ many servants, both male and female, and had purchased many camels and donkeys. He had quickly become a very prosperous rancher. He had done so not by any dishonest manipulation of his own. The original contract would have benefited Jacob, but it also would have benefited Laban. So it's not like Jacob is stealing here. It's just the Lord is working. And he goes on and he says, He had done so not by any dishonest manipulation of his own, but by means of sound practices of animal breeding, which by all normal standards should have been of even greater benefit to Laban than to Jacob. And notice this last sentence, I have it underlined. The God of his fathers, however, had intervened in a marvelous and mysterious way. God worked here. And he worked because Jacob needed help. And if you're in a situation where you need help and you need God to work, as I've said before, take heart in that. Because God will move his hand in your life in all kinds of areas, not just financial. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says something very similar at the very end of this quote. Fruchtenbaum says, rather it was God working a miracle. Now, Jacob originally probably thought it was his business prowess that caused all of this. But you start to see his understanding develop that it was actually the hand of God in subsequent chapters. For example, in Genesis 31, verse 7, which comes after chapter 30, amen. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. However, God did not allow him to hurt me. That's what Jacob is saying. Genesis 31 verse 9. He says, thus God has taken away your father's livelihood and given them to me. It's the hand of the Lord that caused this, in other words. Genesis uh, 32 and verses 9 and 10. It's Jacob praying. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and O God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan and now I have come back with two companies. I mean, when I was uh, a number of years back fleeing from Esau, what did I have with me? I had my staff. And now look at this. I've got two prosperous companies in addition to two wives, (laughs) 11 sons, and one daughter. It's amazing what the Lord did in this man's life. Of course, uh, that shouldn't surprise us, should it? What did God say all the way back in Genesis 12 and verse 2? He articulated in the Abrahamic promises to Abraham, later reiterated to Isaac, later reiterated to Jacob. He promised the patriarch's personal blessing. I will bless you, Genesis 12 verse 2. And you see the manifestation of it here. Well, Jacob must have been a really good boy. To get these blessings. Not so, as we have studied. There was a lot of things in his life that were of a deceptive quality. I don't think here necessarily, but elsewhere as we've studied the book of Genesis. So why would God bless someone who is deceptive? It's very simple. It's the same reason God blesses you. It's the same reason God blesses me. He doesn't bless us because of our... Great merits, because there aren't really a lot of great merits there when you think about it. He blesses because He gave to the patriarchs a covenant which is without conditions. Just like salvation. Given to you without conditions. When God formed the Abrahamic covenant, as we have studied in Genesis chapter 15, it was given without conditions. In fact, Abraham, as we have studied, who then was Abram, was asleep when God alone is represented by the oven and the torch, pass through those severed animal pieces. God is saying, if I don't do what I have obligated myself to do under the Abrahamic covenant, then let me be cut in two as these animals have been. And God did not allow Abraham to pass through the animal pieces. Only God did. Showing that this covenant, which Jacob is the beneficiary of is the recipient of is coming to him not because of some sort of merit of his own but because of the unconditional promises of god you know a lot of people and as the social justice movement which is sort of mixing marxism with christianity You need to get on top of this movement because your children and your grandchildren are all being taught this sort of mindset. The social justice movement basically says if you're wealthy, you're in sin. Because you obviously got that wealth by stealing it from somebody else. And therefore the purpose of government is to redistribute the wealth. And by the way, as culture after culture, nation after nation, society after society has fallen for that lie, how's it working out for them? I mean, why are they all fleeing into our country to the point where we have a borders crisis? They're running from something. And what they're typically running from is the utopias that they were promised which never really became utopias or perfect societies. They became hell on earth. I think the title of Richard Wormbrandt's book, who was tortured in Romania as a Christian by a Marxist regime, the title of his book is Marx and Satan. That about sums it up. Marxism is Satan. It is satanic at its core. Its ambition and its desire is to, well, maybe we all become equal, but we're equally poverty stricken. And the party officials and those that control the distribution of wealth process, interestingly, they become phenomenally wealthy. Marxism is hell on earth. I think it was Ronald Reagan who was asked about socialism, and he said, you know, socialism only works in two places. Heaven, where they don't need it, and in hell, where they already have it. And I think that's a pretty good summation. And you need to be informing your children and your grandchildren that all this gobbledygook that they're being taught today in the name of equity and things like that, It's nothing more than warmed over Marxism, which has failed everywhere it's been tried. And so in the social justice theology, people will say, well, if you're rich, you're outside of God's will. Not so. One of the most um, misquoted verses of the Bible is 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10. It's misquoted as money is the root of all evil. What does the verse actually say? First Timothy six ten, for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. There's nothing wrong with possessions, as long as your possessions don't possess you. There's nothing wrong with owning things as long as what you own doesn't own you. Where it eclipses a relationship with the Lord, then it becomes a problem. First Timothy chapter six, verses seventeen through nineteen says, instruct instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Boy, I had to have someone of the countenance of Dr. Stanley Toussaint at Dallas Seminary to open my eyes to that passage. Because I at that time I thought Christianity was all about sacrifice. Discipleship. And he noted that clause there in 1 Timothy 6 verse 17. Where it says God richly gives us all things to enjoy. I mean if, if God has blessed you materially. And you're enjoying some of the benefits of those things. There's, there's nothing unbiblical about that at all. In fact, God put it in your life for you to enjoy. The quote goes on in 1 Timothy, and it says, Instruct them, though, to be good, rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. In other words, it's not my wealth, it's the Lord's wealth, and I should be generous with it. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take take hold of life, which is life indeed. In fact, Jesus Christ himself, in fulfillment of Bible prophecy, was buried in the tomb of a rich man. And the moment Jesus was buried in the tomb of a rich man, it fulfilled specific prophecy about him in Isaiah chapter 53. What was that rich man's name? It's a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Well, where did did Joseph of Arimathea acquire the means to purchase the burial site of Jesus Christ? He had those means because he was wealthy. Matthew 27 verse 57 says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. Watch this now. Who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. Notice the word disciple and notice the word rich used of the same person. And because rich and disciple are used of the exact same man, Joseph of Arimathea, it shows me that being a wealthy, financially wealthy disciple is not outside of God's will. Yeah, but Pastor, what about the rich young ruler where Jesus said, sell it all? Well, that was an issue for the rich young ruler who had made money his idol. And we know from Matthew chapter 6 that you cannot serve both money and Jesus simultaneously. You'll either love the one and hate the other, or hate the one and... Uh, love the one love the other despise the one etc cetera, etc cetera. you can't serve god and mammon the problem with the rich young ruler is he had an issue with money being an idol and so jesus says for you to see correctly you're going to have to sell it all but that's not some kind of universal command for everybody god may call you to sell it all if it becomes an idol But if it's not an idol, there's no problem with it at all, as evidenced by the fact of Joseph of Arimathea. As evidenced by the fact that God is dealing with Jacob, where he has become not just wealthy, but very, very wealthy. An explosion of wealth. Which is sort of an answer, when you think about it, to the desire of his heart because when you go back to verse 30, basically what he is saying there in verse 30 is, I've got a big family now. I've got two wives. I've got 11 sons. A 12th is on the way um be born later, I should say. In Genesis 35, I've got one daughter. And I realize, Lebon, that my presence here among you has made you wealthy, but I need financial stability myself. You see that expressed there in verse 30. And over the course of a few years, God has honored the desire of his heart. God is like that. Psalm 37 and verse 4. Of course, as long as the desire is not misdirected, if it's a God-ordained desire, God will honor that as you go to him in prayer. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord. And he will make you absolutely miserable all your days. Whoops, doesn't say that. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. But you notice first, I've got to delight in the Lord before I come to him with my own desires. Because guess what happens when you delight yourself in the Lord? It's a very interesting process God puts it through. his desires become your desires. In other words, what he wants to do in your life, he'll put that desire inside your heart. You know, long before I ever surrendered to any sort of call into ministry, the Lord had already put on my desire to be a teaching pastor. In fact... um, I remember one time the little church that I was at, the pastor got sick and he let me preach a sermon. So I preached my sermon, first sermon about the age of 23. And I can only praise God that there's no internet at that time. I don't think there's any record of it that I know of. If you find it, just keep it in hiding for me if you could. But I remember preaching that sermon and saying, wow, this is really, this is really neat. And I thought to myself, well, maybe the pastor will get sick next week. (laughs) Is Is it wrong, Lord, for me to pray that the pastor would get sick so I could get more preaching and teaching opportunities? I mean, this was long before I ever moved in the direction of ministry. I was involved in a totally different career. And yet the Lord just put this little desire, which became a big desire, in my heart. Pay attention to those things in your life. Pay attention to the the sort of the yearnings of the heart. I'm not talking about sinful things, of course, but yearnings of the heart that don't seem to go away. It could very well be that God put those there because he wants your life to move in a particular direction. I think this is what's happening with Jacob. Jacob. And as we kind of finish our discussion here of Jacob, I don't know if we need too much of a reminder what true wealth really is. Money is wonderful when it's directed the right way, but you may have no money at all. And in Christ, you're already rich. You just don't realize it. The book of Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing where? In the heavenly places. Oh, Lord, bless me. Bless me. God says, I already did. Read the Bible. Read Ephesians 1 verse 3. Notice it doesn't say he's blessed us with 95% of spiritual blessings. Blessings. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ, you can't have these unless you're in Christ by way of faith. And so it really doesn't matter what your socioeconomic status is. If you're in Christ, you're wildly blessed already. It's a higher form of blessing. It's in an account that inflation can't touch. Thieves, as Jesus said in Matthew 6, can't break in and steal And enter because it's an inheritance reserved in heaven for you. Jesus, in Revelation 2 verse 9, said something very interesting to the church at Smyrna, the suffering church. He said in Revelation chapter 2 verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Look at that little parenthetical comment there, but you're rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. In other words, I know about your persecution. I know about your poverty. But you're rich and you don't realize it. He says something very different to the church at Laodicea. The wealthy church. The word Laodicea, it's a compound word meaning the people ruling. They're having church without Jesus. Jesus is outside the door of the church, knocking, seeking admittance. They had a lot of money. They had a lot of wealth. They probably had a very big attendance. They probably had a big church budget. Probably had a lot of staff members. But Jesus says this to Laodicea, and it's just a matter of juxtaposing Laodicea with Smyrna. He says two different things to two different churches. Because you, that's Laodicea, say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. I mean, you're so rich, Jesus says, you don't need me anymore. You do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor. Blind and naked. You're poor and you don't even know it. Because wealth to you has become your God. Compare that to Smyrna where they had nothing to trust in but Jesus. Smyrna's rich. Laodicea who had all the right accoutrements and accompaniments on the outside was actually very, very poor. I guess if I had my choice, I'd rather be Smyrna than Laodicea. How about you? Because you possess, as a Christian, true spiritual riches, regardless of one's economic or socioeconomic status. If God blesses you materially, praise the Lord. But keep the credit where it belongs, on God. See it as his special blessing to you. But even if he's done nothing like that in your life, you know what? In Christ Jesus, you are already phenomenally wealthy. And so how can you, as an unsaved person, become phenomenally wealthy in the spiritual sense? We call this the gospel, which means good news. It's good news because Jesus did everything to bridge and to solve the greatest problem that we have. The distance between a sinful man and a holy God. Jesus stepped out of eternity into time to bridge the gulf as the God-man. Only Jesus can bridge this gulf because he's the only one that's the God-man. His final words on the cross were, it is finished. And so for for a person to become tapped into, the phenomenal riches that are available at your fingertips... It's just a matter of trusting what Jesus did in your place 2,000 years ago. You trust not in yourself, not in your good works, not in your own religiosity, not in your family history. But you trust exclusively in Jesus for your eternity and the safekeeping of your soul. This is what we mean by believe. It's more than just an intellectual assent. It's a matter of trust, where you're trusting Jesus to do for you what he's promised to do for the whole human race, to fix a problem we can't fix. Only in Christ is it fixed. And so we invite men and women, and anyone, quite frankly, within the sound of my voice, either in the building or listening online, or perhaps listening or watching archives after the fact to respond to the convicting ministry of the Spirit. There is no doubt in my mind that many people are under the conviction of God because Jesus says that's what the Spirit would do. He, the Spirit will not believe for you. He will bring you though to the point of decision Where you, through volition, need to do something. And what you need to do is not to try harder. (laughs) You need to trust in what Jesus has done for you 2,000 years ago. And as you do that, you're part of something that we call the grace package. Tremendous resources, a tremendous bank account, a, a tremendous income statement, balance sheet where you discover that God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing, which is what true wealth really is. And so we've kind of looked at today Jacob's uh, enrichment. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll be moving into Genesis chapter 31. I would encourage you to read that in preparation for next week. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for what you did for Jacob in a tough time in his life. We're grateful for the fact that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you want to work this way in many of our lives, we believe, as you take our circumstances and our situations and turn them around for your purposes and your glory. As you do this great work, we'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said...